Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. I am standing in the Jordan River right now. This is where John the Baptist was baptizing people and preparing them, giving them a baptism of repentance, saying, do you understand who's about to come? Look, this is not just another human being that's going to show up. He really understood his unworthiness. And as I stared at that and I thought about this and the series we're doing, do you recognize how holy this is? I've been wrestling with this thinking, God, who am I to even speak about God becoming flesh? And I can only imagine as he's coming, like, what do you do? What would it feel like to stand in front of your creator. These are holy, holy, holy things. Man, it is so, so sad. If you have lost the fascination of Almighty God emptying himself and taking the form of a man, God, I pray that as we pursue and we read this book together and we journey through the life of your son, God, that we treat this as sacred, as holy, 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 like no other news on the earth, God. Change our hearts. Help us to see that everything else is so ridiculous compared to this one great truth of you becoming man, dying on a cross for all of our sins, rising from the dead. God, teach us how to marvel again. Teach us to be fascinated with the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this day, and we just ask, Jesus, that you'd be here with us, that you would fill us with your spirit as we learn what you're going to say today. Tune our eyes and our ears to hear from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So that video was one of many that are available to you through Right Now Media. This is something I've mentioned to you before. If you don't have a subscription to Right Now Media, you're in uh, good company because you have the opportunity to have it at no cost. The church takes care of that for you. If you want instructions on how you can partake of some of that, it's in your bulletins on the right-hand side in the lower right-hand corner. We'll tell you how to sign up so that you can access biblical studies like the one that you saw the introduction for on the screen. Today is our third week in our study of the book of Mark. And we open this series with the question, are you ready? Are you ready for the return of Jesus? And we talked about specifically in the first week of this series, about how to be ready and prepared for his return. It's all about our pursuit, our perseverance, and our perspective. Are we pursuing Jesus to be pure as he is pure? Are we persevering through whatever circumstances come our way? And do we have the right perspective? Jesus is Lord. 
which means he's our master. We are his servants. And are we living in expectation of his return? That's the perspective we're to have. And so in week two, we talked about how to prepare for battle. And we explored how Jesus was prepared before he went into the wilderness to fight the enemy. He was first baptized, and then he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism is an act of obedience. It does not save us, but it absolutely does empower us. Because we are visually preaching the gospel when we're baptized. Jesus was baptized, fulfilling all that God required of him. So you and I ought to be baptized too. And you have the opportunity to do that next Sunday. You can sign up on the sheet here, right here on the table, on the sign-up table to your uh, right, my left. Feel free to do that. And if you'll also fill out on there, would you like to be baptized in the river or would you like to be baptized here? It's your choice. Some of you have said you want to be baptized in the river, and that's fine. I will do it in both locations, one location. It doesn't matter to me. I just want to see us all obey the Father in baptism. So sign up today. Next, we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is simply us submitting to the Holy Spirit and allowing Him to lead and control our lives. We cannot be filled with the Spirit when we are following our flesh because those two are in polar opposites of one another. And the last thing we talked about in week two to prepare for battle is to understand that after every blessing from the Lord comes an attack from the enemy. You can count on it. So you need to be ready. Before Jesus began his ministry and took on the enemy, he was first prepared through baptism and then was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the question that I posed the last time that we met together in this series was, are you prepared for battle? Are you prepared? Now, I want you to notice the progression of our study so far in the book of Mark. Week one was, are you ready? Week two was, prepare for battle. And today, week three, is all about how to fight to win. It's critical that we understand this progression. We have to be ready for the Lord's return. We must be prepared for battle before we can fight to win. Get these out of order and you can get into some real trouble. So when we do encounter the enemy, we don't just want to fight. We want to fight to win. We want it to be a decisive battle in which the enemy retreats in defeat. Now, we know as Christ followers that ultimately our enemy is already defeated. He's defeated because Jesus disarmed him by what he did on the cross for you and me. So our, the, our enemy's ultimate destination is already foretold. It's in the lake of fire where he will suffer for all eternity. But between now and then, you and I may engage in many battles with him and his army of evil. So I don't want you to just know how to fight. I want you to know how to fight to win. The first thing that we need to know is that we are powerless in our own strength. That's your first blank in your handout if you're taking notes. We are powerless in our own strength. All the power comes from the Lord. And so it's from his strength and it's from his wisdom that we should draw ours because he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. Don't ever forget that. That's the truth. So let's jump into our text today. If you've got your Bibles, let's turn to Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. Mark chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we've got them here on the bookshelf. You're welcome to borrow. You can follow along on the screen. So Mark says, beginning here in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, immediately, there's that word we've been seeing, that's how Mark is moving from one action scene to another using this word. 
Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Him, meaning Jesus. Verse 13, he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. Now there's a whole lot more detail in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke about the temptation of Jesus than what we see here in Mark's account. As I said in week one, Mark's gospel is more about what Jesus did than on what Jesus said. Mark is brief and he's blunt in his gospel account, and he jumps from one action scene to another. So it's no surprise that we have few details of Jesus' temptation here. But let's unpack what we do see here in, in Mark before we jump over to Matthew. First, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. In other words, there is a sense of urgency here to accomplish a task that God has assigned Jesus to complete. And as I said in week two of our series, this is God going on the offense. He's going on the offense to demonstrate that his son is far superior to Satan. In fact, this is one of the reasons that you and I may be permitted to be tempted is so that when we are victorious, we demonstrate how we, or Jesus rather, is superior to Satan. Because he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. We actually validate this truth every time we overcome temptation. It's also interesting to see the parallels of this text with the Old Testament. The Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness being tested, and they failed. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness being tested, and he succeeded. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see Jesus referred to as the last Adam. So the first Adam in the book of Genesis, he was tested in the garden and he failed in the face of Satan. The result of this failure got him and all of mankind kicked out of the garden. But the last Adam, Jesus, was tested in the wilderness and he succeeded in the face of Satan. And the result of this success makes a way for all of mankind to come back to the garden. The reference to the wild animals in verse 13 is also very interesting. I don't believe that this is some random detail that Mark just happened to throw in there. As if he said, he's with the wild animals and the angels were serving him, as if we're to just gloss right over that. I think that's an important detail. This reference to wild animals could be a preview to the time when Jesus will return to this earth to establish his kingdom. And in that kingdom, predator and prey will lay down together. And we know that from the prophet Isaiah, because this is what he says in Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Isaiah says, Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. So that shoot, that branch, that's referring to Jesus. All right? And what I love about verse 2 is then you're going to see the sevenfold spirit of God rest upon Jesus. Here it is. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. Isn't it interesting that the fear of the Lord keeps coming up? It's been, we've referenced it in every message in this series so far. I don't believe that's by accident because we need the fear of the Lord. This world needs the fear of the Lord now more than ever. His delight, remember that, his delight is in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, verse 4. But he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth. What's that? That is the sword of the Spirit. 
That is the word of God. That's that scepter right there. So what you see now is you see Jesus donning the armor of God, right? That's the sword of the spirit. You're going to see more. And he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. What is that? That is more armor of God. You see, Jesus wears the same armor that Paul told us to put on in Ephesians chapter 6. That's what's going on here. Three pieces of armor. Sword of the Spirit, the breastplate of righteousness, and then you see also the faithfulness. And then we get to verse 6. This is going back to the wild animals that I reference. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, predator and prey. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat, predator and prey. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will be together, and a child will lead them. Verse 7. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young ones will lie down together, predator and prey. And the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand to us into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain. For the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that an amazing picture? How cool is that going to be to see wild animals who are enemies not harming one another, nor are they harming us? Perfect creation restored to its original design. That's what Jesus will do, and that's potentially the reference that Mark was alluding to when he said that Jesus was with the wild animals in verse 13 of our text. Now, it's the temptation of Jesus that I'd like for us to really dive into today. Because this will not only show us how to fight, this will show us how to fight to win. Mark says here in his account that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness and that Jesus was there 40 days being tempted by Satan. So what did this temptation involve? Or another word for temptation is testing. What did this look like for Jesus? How was Jesus tested and how did he respond? By us answering those questions, we're going to see how to fight to win. Now, Satan goes after Jesus the same way he goes after us, which is the same way he's been going after all of creation since the very, very beginning. It's the same formula. Introduce doubt by tempting us through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, let's look at this in the book of Genesis as Adam and Eve were the first human beings to fall prey to this strategy. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent. Serpent happens to be the form that Satan took here when he first encountered mankind. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? First words that Satan utters to mankind, and what does he do? He introduces doubt, causing into question what we know from the word of God. Now watch how Eve responds. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. So she knew the word of God. She knew what God said. And yet, what does Satan do? He planted seeds of doubt. He's going to follow it up now in verse 4. Here comes the lie. No, you will certainly not die. That is the same lie that is being propagated today. It started in the garden. It's the same lie being told today because the real answer is you will die. 
Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. You want to live a life of sin? You're going to die spiritually. Period. Doesn't matter what Satan says. Oh, no, you're not going to die. Romans chapter 8, verse 13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. All right? That is the truth from God's word. Yet the enemy is still saying today, Oh, you can live however you want. You can live in the flesh. All you've got to do is raise your hand during a service and say that you've accepted the Lord, and then you can go out and live your life however you want to. No, you can't. The Word of God says it so clearly. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Don't let anyone deceive you. Verse 5, In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. You see how Satan makes it sound so good? He's masking the lie here, making it sound good. Now, with that backdrop in mind, let's move on to verse 6, because verse 6 is where we're going to see all three categories of sin play out in rapid succession. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We'll see them all in verse 6. So here we go. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. Here's the lust of the flesh. This is what the lust of the flesh does. It appeals to a legitimate need in your flesh. Hunger is a legitimate need. So what does Eve do? She looks out into the garden. She sees all these trees out there, but the one that she wants for food is the forbidden one that's, that God had said, you can't eat from that one. So that what the lust of the flesh is, is it's taking a legitimate need and we're trying to fulfill it in an illegitimate manner. That is the lust of the flesh. So not only did she see the tree was good for food, it was also delightful to look at, the word says. That is the lust of the eyes. It's when we see things and we want them. We covet them, all right, and we want them. I don't care. It could be, it could be things that you see, a new car, right, a flashy new car, and you've got to have it because you feel like it's going to give you an upgraded status or something. Or maybe you're seeing someone else's spouse and you're coveting that. Again, it's the lust of the eyes. So it was delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. Here's the pride of life. Now, obtaining wisdom, desiring to have wisdom is not necessarily a bad thing on the surface. The Bible actually says if you lack wisdom, you are to ask your heavenly Father for it, and he will give it to you. But the kind of wisdom that's going on here in this text is, what did Satan say? He said, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. It's appealing to our pride to be like God. In other words, to be your own God, as if you know right from wrong is if you can, you can rely upon yourself. You don't need God. That's the pride of life. It's anything that causes us to puff up and be self-reliant. So there's all three of them. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And what happens? So she took some of its fruit and ate it. So she, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. So that's how sin was born in all of mankind. And it is the same formula that Satan uses today and it is the same formula that Satan tries to use against Jesus. Only this time around, where we failed, Jesus succeeds because he always does everything the Father requires. Now, it's not true obedience unless there is an opportunity to disobey. Okay, Jesus was the Son of Man, and he was tempted just like you and I. He was taken into the wilderness on purpose because there was the opportunity to disobey. Yet he demonstrated true obedience through that opportunity, didn't he? 
Remember, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and God was going on the offense to prove that his son is far superior to Satan. So let's jump over to Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to see all this play out between Jesus and Satan. Matthew records three temptations that Satan threw at Jesus, which are the exact same ones he used against Adam and Eve, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We're going to walk through each one of these temptations together And we're going to see how Jesus responds so that we can understand how to fight to win. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. So here's the first one. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now I want you to notice when Satan arrives. The word says, After Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him. Now we're going to come back to that. I just want you to mark that in your mind as to when does Satan show up. We'll come back. 40 days. Can you imagine how hungry you'd be after 40 days anyone you guys are just holier than now you can fast for 40 days it's no big deal to you (laughs) hunger is a legitimate need we all need food to survive physically but what satan does here is he tempts jesus to satisfy a legitimate need in an illegitimate way now as i said the last time that we met in this series jesus is fasting to show his flesh who is in charge You could say it another way. Jesus is preparing himself for the battle that's about to happen with Satan through his fasting. Our flesh and our spirit are polar opposites. And if we're children of God, we are to live according to the spirit and not the flesh because we've crucified the flesh. And now we no longer live according to the flesh. We now live by faith in Jesus, which is how we live by the spirit. If we don't keep our flesh in check, It will dominate our lives. And this is why Jesus is fasting here. Fasting is a spiritual discipline. It's where we purposely choose to deny ourselves physically while we fully and humbly submit to God. Now back to what I said a minute ago. Notice when Satan arrives. He comes when Jesus appears to be the most vulnerable. Jesus had been fasting 40 days and 40 nights, and he is now hungry the word says that's when satan decides to show up he comes at a moment when we are vulnerable now i'm not saying that's the only time he comes he can come at a point when we appear to be the strongest and hit us from the other angle by exploiting our pride right sometimes when we think we're strong remember the word says be careful when you're standing tall lest you fall right so Satan can exploit that too. But when we appear to be weak, that's often a good opportunity for him to show up. So consider this. The next time that you're feeling angry, you're feeling disappointed, you're discouraged, or you're feeling deprived of something in your flesh, beware. Because those times are actually great opportunities for the enemy to show up. So what does Satan do here? He says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He appeals to a legitimate need, but he entices us to fulfill that legitimate need in an illegitimate manner. Now, there's nothing wrong with eating when we're hungry. 
But Jesus was not in the wilderness to eat. He was there in the wilderness to fast. And he also willingly gave up his divine power to satisfy his physical needs. Yes, he's the son of God. He could easily make food out of thin air. That'd be no problem for him. Matter of fact, you can read about him doing that multiple times. He multiplied the fish and the loaves, didn't he? For the 5,000 and for the 4,000. But to use his power to satisfy his flesh at this moment would have been against his father's will. And you and I see this play out in the world all the time where people are acting against the father's will especially when it comes to sexual immorality. Whether that's fornication, which is sex before a couple is married, or adultery, where sex occurs between a married person and someone who is not their spouse. There are a ton of sexual sins under the umbrella of what the Bible refers to as sexual immorality. Anything that happens sexually, whether it's in physical action or it's in our minds outside of what God has defined in his word as a covenant between a marriage, one man, one woman, is sexual immorality. Now, sex is a legitimate need. But it becomes sexual immorality when it is fulfilled in an illegitimate manner. Now, there are many other ways we can indulge our flesh by trying to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate manner. It could be how we consume our food. It could be on how we use alcohol or how we use drugs. The lust of the flesh is simply trying to fulfill a legitimate need in an illegitimate manner. That's what Satan appeals for us to do through the lust of the flesh. Now, how does Jesus combat this? How does he combat this? Notice how he answers. He answers, it is written. Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. First, he says, it is written. That's the first point I want to make on how to fight to win. It is written. In other words, we have to know the word of God. We have to know it. It's the sword of the spirit. This is our spiritual weapon. And oh, what a weapon it is if we truly know it. Because there's nothing in the world that can stand against it. Nothing. You want to fight to win? Then know the word of God. Now, I want us all to notice the scripture that Jesus quotes here. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. This is where Moses is reminding the Israelites that God allowed them to go hungry in the wilderness so that they would be humbled and learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When God provided manna to the Israelites in the wilderness to eat, it was by his command. So it was his very word that sustained them. And that's the point. Every need that we have can be satisfied in the Lord. That's what God was teaching his people in the wilderness. And so when Jesus quotes this scripture here, he was showing us all that there is a legitimate way to satisfy our physical needs, and it's only through complete trust and faith in the Lord God Almighty himself. You see, when we take matters in our own hands and satisfy our physical needs in our way versus God's way, we prove that we won't really trust him. That's what we prove. You can say whatever you want to about your trust in him with your words. But if your actions don't align with his will, which is in his word, then you don't really trust him. And if you want to fight to win, then know his word and look to him to satisfy every need you have. Amen. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says, Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you 
everything you need. Everything. You're struggling in your marriage? He can, he can fix that. You're struggling with some sort of addiction? He can fix that. You need physical healing? He can fix that. You name the need, God can meet that need. The real question is, do we believe what his word says? Or are we too quick to take matters into our own hands? Jesus understood this like no one else. He was fully God, and yet he was fully man. He had all the same needs in his flesh that you and I have, but his focus and his dependence was on fulfilling his Father's will because he knew that if he were doing that, the Father would meet every need he, need, he had. And it's the same thing for us. Do we fall into the lust of the flesh or do we stand strong by depending upon God to fulfill our needs? The lust of the flesh is the temptation to fulfill a legitimate need in an illegitimate manner. That's what it is. To fight to win, we must live according to the Spirit and not the flesh, which means we don't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So to fight to win, we must know and obey the Word of God. Now let's move to Jesus' second temptation. First, Satan tries to entice Jesus with the lust of the flesh. Now we'll see him in Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. Satan's now going to go after the pride of life. Here it is. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. Now we're going to camp here a bit for a bit because... There's a lot to unpack here. The pride of life is anything in this world that is going to puff us up, cause us to rely upon ourselves. right? That's the pride of life. This second temptation here is even more sneaky than the first. This time, Satan uses the word of God. Oh yeah, he knows the word of God all right. He doesn't always use it the way it needs to be used. He takes it out of context. He leaves things out. We're going to see that. Jesus said in response to Satan's first temptation that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, Satan uses this against Jesus by saying something like this. Okay, since you live by the word of God, then let me quote it to you, and let's see if you're going to obey it, right? Then Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, okay, if you really believe his word, then go ahead and throw yourself down and see if he's not going to save you. Now, Satan is quoting Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12 as part of this temptation. But as we study this, we're going to see that Satan doesn't apply the Scripture correctly, and in fact, he conveniently leaves some of it out. So, and this is what makes this temptation so deceptively dangerous. And all this does is reinforce the first point I made already today, and that is to fight to win, you have to know the Word of God. You just have to. You cannot rely on someone else to feed it to you. You must feast on it yourself. If you're not opening your Bible every day and getting into the Word of God, then you are starving yourself. A snack here or there will not sustain you, nor will it protect you. We all need a healthy diet of spiritual food on a consistent basis, and the main course that cannot be ignored is the Word of God. There is no substitute and there is no supplement that can suffice. I, I hear a lot of people talk about all these things that they do that are supplements. 
they're into this devotion or that devotion or they're listening to this message or that message. Those things are great, but you can't live off of that. It's the word of God that you cannot ever replace. That should be paramount. That should be what your priority is. All those other things are gravy, okay? It's the pure, holy, and infallible truth of God that we need in this this world to survive and to thrive. We need to know it so well that when we hear it misapplied or something is omitted, we can recognize it in our spirit immediately. And this is more important now than ever because there's so much deception in the world today and more and more coming on the horizon. Let me just highlight a couple of examples for you of this deception right now. There's an artificial intelligence technology called ChatGPT. Who's heard of it? Okay. And recently there was a user who posted a question to this technology and he asked it to provide a fake Bible passage referring to Jesus accepting transgender people. This person was feeling bad. They went to chat GPT. They asked it this question, and then it gave this answer back. And what was interesting about it is this answer sounded very appealing. And if you didn't know the word of God, you may have very well have thought that that was actually in the Bible. And that's the real danger when we taint the word of God and then we are deceived from knowing what is truth versus what is fiction. This technology is already here, friends. Now, if you think that's concerning, I want you to wait till you hear what this guy says in this video. I'm going to play this so you guys can hear it. This is Yuval Noah Harari. He's Jewish, referred to as a public intellectual, historian, and professor of the Department of History at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He's the author of the blockbuster book Sapiens, which has sold over 45 million copies. He says the book explains what it means to be human. You're going to hear him talk about human beings being like gods, which was Satan's first light at Eve, about his homosexuality, his strong belief in evolution, about Jesus and his teachings, and even about the resurrection of Christ. Though he's an atheist, he will quote the Bible, continually refer to scripture, talk of God as the petty lawgiver, and speak with excitement about the possibility of artificial intelligence replacing the Bible with a new and better version. You'll hear him say that we have the power to create new life forms, which is just not true. The most intelligent scientist on the face of the earth can't create a grain of sand from nothing, let alone any form of life. God alone creates life, man destroys it. Tell us what you see and why it's difficult perhaps to preview the future at this time. Well, we are now almost like gods in terms of our powers of creation and destruction. We now have the power to create new life forms, but also to destroy much of life on Earth, including ourselves. Instead of uniting in order to face these common challenges to our species, we are dividing, we are fighting each other uh, more and more. The evolution of life on Earth took something like four billion years, four billion years to reach these plants and to reach us, human beings. So ChatGPT and all these wonders, they are the amoebas of the AI world. What would T-Rex look like? It's the first technology ever that can create new ideas. Gutenberg printed the Bible in the middle of the 15th century 
the, the, the printing press printed as many copies of the Bible as Gutenberg instructed it, but it did not create a single new page. It had no ideas of its own about the Bible. Is it good? Is it bad? How to interpret this? How to interpret that? AI can create new ideas, can even write a new Bible. Throughout history, religions dreamt about having a book written by a superhuman intelligence. In a few years, there might be religions that are actually correct, that just think about a religion whose holy book is written by an AI. That could be a reality in a few years. And there's a lot I could say about that. I could go off on the four billion years because that's nonsense. You read that in all kinds of history books. We don't, I, I don't subscribe to that. I subscribe to a creation account, which, which makes the earth about 6,000 or so years old. That's all phony baloney when you go to the museums and you see 65 million years ago. But that's not the point. What I wanted you to see here is what was... What was he really after here? What was he saying in, in his account? What he was doing is, is he was talking about the objective. It was very subtle. And that's the thing with evil. It can sound so good and it can appeal to you. Oh, we're destroying one another. We're fighting one another. So let's have peace. There's always something thrown in there to throw you off. Yeah, peace and safety. Well, everybody loves that, don't they? Because they want to be cozy and comfortable. The enemy uses all kinds of ways to mask things. And sometimes it's not masked at all. Sometimes it's right in your face obvious. But the objective that he stated was that I, AI will be able to rewrite the Bible so that it's correct. Do you hear that in there? That ought to send a shudder of shock down your spine. Not of fear, but of righteous indignation. There's only one source of absolute truth, and it is God's holy word. And it's already correct. God doesn't need man to help fix anything. To fight to win, we have to know the Word of God. It is the sword of the Spirit. Now, let's dive into what Satan actually said to Jesus specifically and how he not only misapplied the Scripture, but conveniently left part of it out. And that's something you cannot ever underestimate. Did you hear what the narrator said in the very beginning? This gentleman right here that you have on the screen, this guy knows the Bible. He quotes it all the time, he said, and he's an atheist. He's also got strong ties to the World Economic Forum and Charles Schwab, and I could go off that direction, but I won't. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refrain because I want to stay on target, but I could. We've got to be paying attention because this stuff is real. They're already talking about accelerating the 2030 agenda. Don't know what that is? Look it up, okay? So I have on the screen what Satan said to Jesus on the top. This is what he said in Matthew chapter 4. On the bottom is what he's actually quoting from, which is Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12. Now, I've highlighted on the bottom the phrase that Satan conveniently left out. So let's go through this. Matthew chapter 4, verse 6. Here's what Satan said. For it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12. Here's what it says. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. That was not there. He left that out. In verse 12, in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, let's start with how Satan misapplied the scripture first. Context is always king. Any of us can pull scripture out of context and pretty much say whatever we want. And sadly, this happens all the time today. If we read the context of Psalm 91, 
And we see that the promises of God's protection here that he's talking about, which are so beautifully written, are toward those who live in the shelter of the Most High. That's verse 1. To those who have made the Lord their refuge, that is verse 9. To those whose heart or whose love is wholly centered on the Lord, that is verse 14. Now, someone who loves the Lord completely, who has made him their refuge, and who actively and consistently lives in his shelter and trusts him completely, someone like that, who has that kind of trust, would never, ever test the Lord God like Satan is implying here as he's using the word of God. There is no way. If we trust the Lord like his word says we're to trust him, then we would never test him like this. Never. A true child of God who is in the will of God can absolutely claim God's protection. But to willfully put ourselves into trouble and then expect God to rescue us, that's testing God, which is exactly what Satan wanted here. We can never, ever manipulate God to do what we want. Ever. So Satan, as crafty as he is, can use the word of God, which is why we must beware. We've got we to beware and know the, God, know the word of God ourselves. And that's the whole counsel of the word of God, not just our favorite passages. Now Satan also conveniently left out the phrase to keep you in all your ways. Now, why would he leave that out? Hmm. Why would he do that? Let's, think, let's talk about this. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. All the ways of Jesus are always going to align perfectly with his father's ways. Always. And if we look at the greater context of Psalm 91, as I've already shown, someone who completely trusts in the Lord would never test the Lord like this. It would never be one of their ways. So how would the angels be able to fulfill to keep you in all your ways? It's not one of their ways to test the Lord. Now you see, while Satan conveniently left that one out. Oh, he's crafty, all right. He's crafty, but he is no match for the word of God, which is what I've been saying since the beginning of this message. If you have the word of God in you, which is Jesus himself, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. We prove that true every time we are victorious over Satan. And so how does Jesus respond to this? I want you to notice that he doesn't argue. He doesn't argue. He simply responds, it is also written. Do not test the Lord your God. When someone twists the word of God to mean something it doesn't say, we must be able to see right through that just like Jesus does here. To fight to win, we must know and obey the word of God. Now, the third temptation that Satan tries to get Jesus with is the lust of the eyes. And we see this in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Here it is. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you'll fall down and worship me. Appealing to the eyes. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Now what's going on here is the devil is offering Jesus a way to take a shortcut to reach his destiny, isn't he? What is he doing? He's wanting Jesus to bypass the cross. That's what he's doing. If you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer. Just worship me, and I'll give this all to you, right? As he's appealing to the lust of the eyes. 
but there are no shortcuts to the will of God. There are no shortcuts to the will of God. And you see, in this temptation, we really get to the heart of what Satan is after all along. He's up the ante every single time. He started with the lust of the flesh. Then he appeals to the pride of life. And look what he does here. All he really wants is our worship. That's what he's after. He's after our worship. Remember who he was in heaven before he fell? He was the anointed cherub in all of heaven. That's all he wants. He wants worship for himself. And every time we sin, we are choosing him over the Lord. Every time. And I know that's strong, but that is exactly what's going on. We cannot serve sin and serve the Lord. There's no and with that. It's an or. There can be only one master. There are no shortcuts to the will of God. Satan will appeal to us to give up the eternal so we can enjoy the temporary. Oh yeah, Satan wants us to think that there are shortcuts. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to deprive yourself of that. You don't have to follow the word of God. Just do whatever you want. Just enjoy yourself. Just be happy. You deserve this. All of these are lies straight from the pit of hell. If the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, Jesus, had to go to the cross to suffer for all of us, we should never think we can take a shortcut to God's will for ourselves, ever. To fight to win, we have to know and obey the Word of God. So how does Jesus respond? The exact same way he has done every single time. It is written. Once again, he wields the sword of the Spirit. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Now, did you notice that Satan didn't say anything about service? Did he? He said, worship me. If you'll fall down and worship me. So where did, where did this service come from? Jesus knew that whatever we worship, we will also serve. Worship and service are inseparable. Whatever we worship, we will serve. Worship yourself, and you're going to serve sin. Worship the Lord, and you'll serve only Him. Now listen to me very carefully. To serve Satan, sin, or self is true bondage. It's bondage. But to serve the Lord is true freedom. That's the big contrast here. So the bottom line from today's message, if you have not been paying attention... This is the moment where you lean in because this is your takeaway right here. And it's very simple. I didn't give you three points today. I've been driving it home to one central point. Here it is. To fight to win, we must know and obey the word of God. That's it. It didn't matter how many times or how many ways that Satan tried to come at Jesus to try to bring him down. The response was always the same. It is written. Let that be a lesson for us. Nothing trumps the word of God. May we never try to satisfy our flesh apart from the Lord. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And may we always stay humble and keep our eyes on what's eternal instead of what's temporary, because there are no shortcuts to the will of God. Everything we need is found in Jesus. He is the only one that deserves our worship. Not sin, not self, not Satan, just Jesus. Whatever we worship, we serve. So worship and serve the Lord. To fight to win, fight like Jesus. Know and obey the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.
that you endured everything that we struggle with every day. You were a human just like us, but you were perfect in all your ways, giving us such an amazing example. You've shown us how to fight to win. Now, Lord, help us to go forward and fight like you did by knowing and obeying your word. Take us deeper into your word, Jesus, that we can recognize when someone's trying to pull one over on us when it's not even in the word of God. Or maybe they try to misapply it or leave things out. Lord, help us to recognize that. Give us discernment and wisdom. May we have no part in evil, but give us the courage to expose it for what it is. As the world gets darker and darker, help us to shine your light brighter and brighter. Because we know that light will always, always, always win over over darkness. And we thank you for that, Lord. Because he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. Thank you so much for your truth, Lord. If there's someone here that's never given their life to you, Father, may you draw them to you today. May you fill their spirit with your presence and show them that by your grace and through their faith, they can find their way to you because that's the only way. You are the only way, Lord. And so we thank you for it in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. If you need prayer today, you have something on your mind you wanna talk about, I encourage you to come forward. I'd love to pray with you you want to be baptized we're doing it next week so put your name down come talk to me i'm excited for what god is doing and what he continues to do god bless you guys